What's up, everyone? We're back with another episode of the Dub Jelson Podcast, and today I have a legend of MMA, Dean Thomas, with me. Dean, how you doing, man? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm super excited to do this. I've been waiting for a while to uh, to have someone uh, like you to come on the podcast, so I'm super excited. Um, well, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. So, um, first off, I wanted to ask you about all the events that have kind of gone on the last the last few weeks regarding uh, police brutality and the protests and the whole Black Lives Matter movement. Um, what types of thoughts have been going through your head as a black man um, throughout this time? <laughs> um, ah, that's a tough question because it kind of flip flops like from one thing to the next. I mean, the thing is, you know, as a black man. Growing up black in America, most of my life at least, uh, my buddy always says that. But no, uh, as a black man, to see the world show support, first off, it, you go, okay, thank we thank I'm grateful for that to see the world show support. But it's almost kind of like what now? I mean, why now though? Why now? Because because this is something that we've lived with for our entire life. Black people have lived with this since slavery you know slavery jim crow laws uh you know civil rights movement things like that and then just you know institutionalized systematic racism but it was like just one incident was kind of the the tipping point and i'm wondering why i mean i I do understand that it's just kind of why but i'm grateful i am grateful that people are are open to listening so i don't want to like say i don't want it to come off as i'm grateful for it so i am grateful for it but it's just um it just kind of strikes me as tough to swallow it. Like this one incident is what kind of tip people off to, you know what? Maybe there is some problems going on in this country because I know last, because two years ago or yeah, last year when Colin Kaepernick was kneeling, it was, uh, get out of here. When Tyron Woodley was talking about, man, you know, there's some racism in the UFC. Everybody's like, oh, get out of here. But now everybody's like black lives matter. So it's just kind of like, hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can never relate to, um, what you guys have, have had to go through throughout your entire lives. Um, but I could, I could kind of see it, um, from a distance. And I think that a lot of people have an issue of not seeing it. So they're not, um, they don't necessarily care as much, I guess would be the, the way to put it. Um, but people seeing it now, Unfortunately, it took this um, for everyone to get on board, in my opinion. Um, I don't know why people hadn't from the beginning. Uh, I, I'm lucky. Um, my parents taught me from a young age that it doesn't matter what person or what a person, what their skin color is, what their religion is, what their gender is, sexual orientation, any of that stuff. Um, if you just treat people with respect, they're going to respect you, too. And so that's kind of what I've what I've been taking from this. Um, what types of things have you been thinking about doing or doing um, regarding this? <laughs> Nothing actually, because uh, I grew, like I said, I grew up a black man. So in, in my high school years, I remember being not militant, but my, my, I can't remember what grade I was in when the movie Malcolm X came out. I remember I skipped school to go see it. And, you know, it was kind of like, I was I was a part of that, you know, growing up, 
being a part of this movement where it was like I knew there was racial injustice and I knew that I wasn't treated the same because I grew up in a white neighborhood. I remember, you know, my kids would pet my hair and treat me like a pet. You know, they would and I was like the only black kid in all my classes. So I was I was like the representative of black people. And so I knew that racism was a, the real thing. So like now that everybody's on board with it, I don't feel like I need to do anything special. <laughs> You know, but yeah. but I get what you're saying. Like, it's it's very important that people open their eyes up to things because there are a lot of atrocities going on in the world that we are conditioned to. And because we're conditioned to it, we think that it's OK. Like, for instance, like for women, I was I was baffled by some of the stories I hear from women about how they get um, harassed in the streets and, you know, just the way some men talk to them. And I'm like, what, really? It's like that? And they're like, we're just used to it. And I'm just like, that's crazy. So I get it. But for me, I didn't know it really existed. But now that I know it exists, I'm very aware of it. And I'm very aware of how I, very aware of how I talk to women because I don't want to disrespect them in any way. And I'm not the type to go, um, and I understand, like, you know, they're afraid of being raped. And I'm not the type to go, oh, well, what about all the guys that get raped? No, the what if people get on my nerves. So if there's anything that I'm going to do about this is I'd like to slap all the what if people. But what about the what about these? What about the cops that get killed? What about the white people that get killed? It's like it's OK. We get it. But there, it's, that's not really the problem. The problem is the disproportionate numbers of black people. And the problem is the disproportionate numbers of women that are harassed. And the problem is, you know, homosexuality frowned upon like these are all issues that we all need to be aware of and to take in our hands and, and step up for those that don't have a voice so i'm i'm i don't want to be the voice of the black people i've done that my entire life so i'm actually counting on you my friend as a white man to go man look out for them and i'll do it for women you do it for black people we got to do it for each other yeah i mean i put something when all this happened i kind of I kind of like voice out everything on um, on my Facebook page. And I was just like, we're all on the same team at the end of the day. Everyone's trying to provide for the family or be happy. So I don't see the issue with people that we have differences with. Um, but I mean, that's just my perspective. I know some people have different upbringings, unfortunately, and they have um, some kind of crazy thoughts. But I do think one positive that's going to come out of this is there's going to be change. I mean, we're already kind of seeing it um, in early forms, but it, it will take a while. But we're stepping in the right direction, in my opinion. And I also think that it's great that people are calling out all the people who harass women or are uh, homophobic or th things of that nature. I've seen a lot of that on um, on like social media. Um, and I think that'll be a good thing that comes out of this. You're right. For sure. So uh, you're in Vegas right now, correct? Yeah, yeah, I'm in Vegas. I'm actually sitting in my hotel room. I'm sharing a room with Hannah Goldie <laughs> and uh, Jillian Robertson's right across the hall there. So, But don't worry, it's a big suite, so like, I don't want to get that misconstrued. <laughs> oh, no, you're all good. <laughs> you're like, oh, he's in a room with Hannah Goldie. No, she's in her, she got her bedroom. I got mine. So. That's good. So how's fight week kind of been for you? Um I know you cornered Tyron a couple of weeks ago throughout this whole pandemic. Um, I know it's been different for you, but how have you kind of approached it as a coach? Um, it's actually a lot. It's a lot easier. <laughs> it's a, it's a lot less stress 
from an external standpoint. I mean, there's still the internal issues as far as like cutting weight and, you know, making sure your fighters prepared and, and mentally ready to go out there and do, do battle. But, uh, Jillian Robertson's a piece of cake. She's so easy to work with. You know, she's, she's young and she wants to be here and, you know, she's, you know, just, eager to go out there and perform so she's she's really easy to work with and she doesn't have a weight issue so you know her weight cut is just essentially within the diet so and our workouts are pretty much the same so um but the whole week is different in the sense that we are so almost sequestered in the hotel that the ufc provided so no one can come into the hotel if you are a licensed cornerman or or need to be here so it's everything is locked down the precautions for COVID-19 is very strict and high. So um, the UFC has done a great job of keeping everybody safe. But uh, I, I love this type of environment without all the distractions. Yeah, it's probably it's probably it has its uh, positives, but I know it probably has some negatives for some different fighters. Um, have you noticed any change in your fighters mentality going into fight week? In terms of uh, for Jillian or or Tyron for either of them, both of them. Um, yeah, I mean, but that's, but not because of like the situation. No, um, every, you know, as fighters mature, they change, you know, they have different things going on in their lives and that affects them during fight week or whatever. But I don't see that. I don't think that this type of environment is going to change them or at least it won't be for the worst anyway, because I think the fact that there is no crowd, there's, you know, less pressure to perform. They don't feel like they have to perform for the crowd. They just... They can take, they can scratch that off the list. So now their performance is based on, uh, you know, self-satisfaction. So, or just to make their, the people who work with them happy. Mm-hmm. How do you think the UFC is handling this whole pandemic and um, the restrictions they put on and the tests that they've been um, giving you guys and all that? Oh, they've done a great job. Um, so we, you know, the, before we do anything, the first thing we do is take a test. You know, we walk in the building and they just usher us right to the testing spot. You know, we we test and fill out some paperwork. Then they, boom, go to your room. <laughs> go to like a, like a little bad kid. Go to your room. No, but <laughs> at this point we can leave. But on on Friday after the weigh-ins, uh, once we come back from the weigh-ins, they test us again, and then we can't leave until after the fight's over. So that and that's not like a big deal. You know, it's just we just got to make sure you got food and. Yeah. They've done a good job of of uh, having shuttles to Whole Foods so that we can all have food and and it's a and the the place where we're staying they're sweets so we can cook, which is helpful for all of us you know especially the fighters, and um they have microwaves so I can make some chicken nuggets because I eat like a five year old but that's all good. <laughs> I know uh, um Frivola tested positive today right or one of his cornermen. Yeah, one of his cornermen did yes. Billy Quarantino. Uh, do you guys have any concerns about that? Wait a minute. Billy Quarantino was the one that tested positive? I'm pretty sure. Wow. That's that's crazy because he just fought a couple weeks ago. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's. I mean, it, but, you know, the thing is now, you know, at some point, I think that everybody's going to get this. It's almost like catching, like, the flu or something. I think at some point everybody's going to get it. And once we can get a handle of it, it won't be such a taboo thing because – like last month, coronavirus was the new AIDS. It was like, if you had it, oh, you just, just stay away from me. You know, it was, and, and even me, I'm like, every time I take the test, I'm so nervous. I'm like, man, I do not want to see my name on MMA Junkie talk about Dean Thomas tested positive. I don't want to see it. So 
because it's such a taboo thing. But the reality is it's just a, a virus, a cold. You know, it's really just a cold that, you know, old people can't handle. <laughs> but yeah. uh, so I think at the end of the day, like some people have gotten it already and, and it passed through them. Some people probably will. We're all probably going to get it at some point. Um, I just can't wait till we have a better understanding of it so that we can deal with it better so that it's not such a taboo thing because right now it's like it's the new AIDS. If you have it, everybody's like, oh, get them away from us. Mm-hmm. I think I had it in uh, late February, early March. <clears throat> I got sick like I had a 103 fever the day after 248. So I came home to watch that. So I think I had it. I just got the antibody test today, actually. Uh, yeah. But for real. <laughs> but if if like Say, like, you or Jillian or Hannah got it. I mean, you guys are going to be fine. You guys are all in very good health. You, you guys are very fit. You guys take care of yourselves. So I don't think it'll be a huge issue in terms of um, impacting the cards. And it really hasn't been this far. It's just been Jacare and Billy. Yeah, I mean, fun. that's – which is kind of crazy in itself because uh, I would think that more people would have tested positive for it just based on sheer numbers alone. But – you know, it's funny because like when Jacare got it, everybody's like, "Oh no, Jacare got it! Wow, no!" But the thing is, like, I haven't heard an update about him since he's gotten it. Yeah. Like, is he is he dead? What's going on? Like, where is he? Yeah, I don't I mean, know where this guy is. And he's one of the older fighters too. So, and he's, I'm sure he's kicked it by now. But uh, yeah, I think hopefully we can get fans in the in the stadiums and arenas soon. Yeah, there is something about that. Um, like I said, as a coach who just wants a good performance from a fighter, I appreciate this environment much better. But um, I could I could imagine that in the future we need to get back to having fans. And, well, one, obviously for financial reasons. And, two, um, there's something to be said about having fans live in attendance to watch a combat be ensue because um, – you know, there's just something about it. And I have some rituals that I would always do. I would always throw my hat out to the crowd when I'm walking a fighter out. So I can't do that now. <laughs> do you notice any or do you have any uh, differences in how you approach during during the fight? So, like, do you have to lower your voice so the other the other corner doesn't hear you or anything like that? No, I'm not. I'm not really a vocal uh, coach anyway during the fight. You know, I sometimes I have to. But I'm not really that vocal during the fight anyway. I mean, it's almost like, you know, in baseball, you don't want to, you don't want the team to know the pitches. I mean, that's why they, you know, the Astros got in trouble for that, for stealing mm-hmm. pitching signs, you know. And it's like, yeah. as a coach, why would you yell out a bunch of instructions to your fighter so that everyone can hear it? So I'm not mm-hmm. that vocal anyway. I wait till we, I wait till the break. I feel as though if I have to yell out instructions during the fight i didn't do a good enough job coaching my fighter you know um so yeah we we may have some some keywords that we use in order to get something out but i'm not going to be yelling a lot regardless Mm -hmm. yeah that may that makes sense to me um so i want to talk about kind of recently you you moved away from america top team to create your own gym or are you um kind of honing in on a few fighters I'm just honing in on a few fighters. I just, I don't know if it's my way of, it's not that I want to get out of the game. I just don't want to be, you know, I don't, I'm tired of like feeling like I'm fitting into this mold of of guys that always have to prove themselves and come up and like, that's just not my style no more. And 
Um, I, my heart just ain't in the the environment of of, of MMA. It's just not there. So, but I, I love the sport of it. I love what we're you know what the idea of two people going to war, hand to hand combat, and me trying to help one of them defeat the other one. That's what I love. I don't love the politics and the drama that come along with it. And it comes along with it just because of so many people's involved, different personalities and different wants and needs. And um, you're dealing with a team like American Top Team. It's it's such a big team and people coming from all over the world and in and out. And it's just so it's overwhelming at times. And I'm at the point in my life where I'm trying to slow down. So I'm just going to hone in a couple fighters. What well, made this time um, just the time to go? Is it kind of what you touched on a minute ago? Uh, well, you know, the thing is, I was I had left for camp with Tyron um, in like February or March and uh, you know and and I was like going through some changes anyway I was you know I'm getting older <laughs> I'm going through changes and and uh, and I'm going I'm in camp with Tyron and we stay at an Airbnb and we would go to the Airbnb then we go to the gym back to the Airbnb back to the gym and I would spend all my time with him just making sure that he was getting ready for a fight and I'm thinking to myself you know, if if I was with fighters full time like this, I believe that they would get better because I would be able to hold them accountable for stuff and I could watch their progress and I could see it and I could we could do film study and we could. And Tyron's an older fighter. So like he I'm always going to want to work with him if if he has a fight, but he's not a young up and coming guy with, you know, this high potential like he's essentially done what he's done. But I'm thinking like if I was working with younger fighters, I could make them so much better, I think, as opposed to being in this big gym and getting to work with them once a week. And then the rest of the time, you know, they're fending for themselves or, you know, being used as a sparring partner. And then by the time I get to them, they're too tired to learn anything. So I was just thinking, you know what, if, if let me just take a couple of fighters and just concentrate on them. Let's see how good I really am as a coach. Mm-hmm. I mean, from what I've, from what I understand, you're one of the best in the game for sure. But did you kind of draw any inspiration from guys like Trevor Whitman, um, who's kind of done the same thing you've done in a way? You know, I haven't. Um, and that's not a knock against Trevor. I just, you know, I didn't uh, – actually, I didn't put two and two together until today. Me and Hannah Goldie were talking, and she was like um, – and I was like, yeah, I just don't want to have a big team of fighters. I, I just don't – I don't need it. I don't, I don't need it. I don't want it. And she was like, well, look at Trevor Whitman. He only took just two fighters. <laughs> and I was like, it's right. And, and he's got two remarkable fighters. He may have some others on his, on his list, but I'm sure he, you know, two main fighters that he focuses on. And like, that's all I kind of want is just a couple of fighters that I focus on. And the rest, you know, you can come around every once in a while, but I don't really want to put that much time into you. So you have three fighters right now, right? I have, I, I have a couple. I have a couple that I'm working with. Like Tyron isn't – like I said, Tyron is kind of on his way out. I mean he's still fighting. Like he wants to ha- like he wants to get a, another couple fights this year. But, you know, he's not somebody that I'm looking to go, okay, let's analyze your game and, you know, let's start fixing your weaknesses. You know, he's he's probably in his last year of fighting. So, you know, we're just going to ride this thing until <laughs> to the wheels fall off. But with – you know, but right now I'm working with um, Jillian Robertson, Hannah Goldie, Greg Hardy, Shorty Torres, and I got a couple other guys that stop by every once in a while that I'll allow to come to the crib. But um, 
but that's about it really like i don't really need any much more people mm-hmm. than that. like every so often i may pick up somebody for fun but you know in terms of like really putting an investment into them i'm keeping a small number so you're not adding anyone else to the mix not really i mean i might but not not at the level that i'm going to work with these guys yeah you know with these guys i'm really going to i'm really going to sit down and and you know we're going to you know the thing the thing with greg is and greg understands how it works cuz he's played nfl football before and this we're talking about billions of dollars in this, in this industry where the everybody makes millions of dollars so they don't leave anything to chance like MMA people. MMA people still fight for pride. Football players fight for money. They do they do it for money. So their day Greg would tell me how an NFL day would be, it would be like going on a job going to a job. Like they'd show up and you'd uh lift weights, then you'd have a team meeting, then you do practice, they'd film it, you'd watch the practice and then you'd have a, a coaches meeting and it was just like an all day job for these guys. But MMA guys are kind of like you go to the gym, you fuck around for a little bit, and then you train hard, do a couple rounds, and go home, come back, train. It's like you know, it's very yeah. antiquated in a way. It's still got it's got a lot of room to grow. But I'm I want to be the one one of the guys who is going to get ahead of it and treat it like a professional sport first. Mm-hmm. So I kind of want to talk about your transition from becoming a fighter or being a frat fighter to becoming a coach, how do you think that's translated so well? Um, Cause I made a lot of mistakes as a fighter. I mean, I've, and not only, not only as a fighter, uh, in fact, we did an interview yesterday with Ed Suarez and I asked him how he got in the game. He said he started off uh, training, obviously. And then he started a t-shirt company, sinister t-shirts. And then he started uh, managing fighters. And then he just, so the thing is like, he did so many different things in MMA and when you can do that many different things in MMA, you see the whole game from different perspectives because promoters see the game from a one way and fighters see it from a, from a different way. And they almost see it from opposite perspectives. And I've done both. I've seen it as from the fighter's eyes. I've promoted shows. I've managed guys. So I know how it all works. I've Now I'm coaching fighters. I've done it all. I've commentated. I've done it all. And when you can do it all, you can see it from so many different perspectives and you and at the end of the day, everybody wants really the same thing to get paid. And sometimes you have it's a conflict of interest for each other, which is why, you know, George Masvidal and Dana White are at odds right now, because it's a conflict of interest for them to to do business together um, as much as it seems like as it wouldn't be. But as a fighter, I'm able to see the game from the fighter's eyes. As a coach, I'm able to see it from a coach's eyes and I can marry the two perspectives and go, this is what you need as a fighter because I've been there. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I hope that more, more fighters um, get into it um, to get into coaching that have had success in the UFC or Bellator or wherever else. How do you think the sport has evolved since your time when you started to when you retired to um, now? Well, obviously there has been so many different transitions of where the game has been. And this is a, this is a game that the, a sport or a game, however you want to label it, is, a, is something that we've watched grow, evolve from the beginning. And I'm proud to say that I was a part of the growth, you know, of where it is today. I was a part of why some things are the way they are today. Um, 
especially in Florida. You know, I, don't, I think if it wasn't for me, there wouldn't be amateur fights in Florida. I was arrested for throwing a smoker. So <laughs> that was what kind of prompted them to say we need to do amateur fights in Florida. So, again, there's something else that I could see a different perspective from. But um, it's just there's been so many different uh, waves of the way the game has been played. Um, before my time, I mean, it was strictly, you know, you probably could fight with jean shorts on, you know, there, no, there was no gloves and, you know, they were really specialists or claimed to be specialists. Um, then my time came is when um, it was that crossbreed style started to happen. But anybody who was any good at crossbreeding, we had to do it on our own in a sense. So we didn't because there was no sport. So we had to we had to make it up as we were going along. So. We talk about what the sport of MMA is today. This is what we've been doing. I've been doing this for 20 years, and I've been making it up as I go along because it wasn't – there was no techniques back then. There was no technique for ground and pound. There was no technique – because in wrestling, you don't learn how to deal with strikes in wrestling. So you have to you got to learn how to do it on, on the spot. So that's one of the biggest differences is back then it didn't exist. Today it does exist. And I'm ahead of the curve because I've been working on these things for 20 years. Yeah, for sure. I think a big a big part of that was guys who could um, do a bunch of different things. You look at three of the greatest of all time, if not one of them is the greatest, in my opinion. Uh, GSP, Silva, and John Jones, all of them combined everything to be- become like a perfect martial artist, in my opinion. Um, so I think that's a – going off of what of what you said, I think that's a – that's a fair assumption. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, the thing is, part, part of the reason why they're considered the greatest of all time is their, one, is their accomplishments. And I, I would have to throw Demetrius in there, too. He doesn't get enough credit, I believe. But they're, the thing with them is they were just ahead of the curve. They, they were better at transition than everybody else. You know, George St. Pierre wasn't the best wrestler in the welterweight division, but he could take everybody down because his transitions were better. So he was ahead of the curve. And that's what, and those, those are the things that I'm talking about, the waves that we're in or how, how deep we are into the curve. And George St. Pierre was way ahead of the curve before everybody else. Mm-hmm. So now we're kind of short on time, but I wanted to ask you about uh, the Usman Burns fight since you've cornered Tyron for both for both of his bouts with those guys. Um, how do you see that fight playing out? It's tough because you never you don't they've trained together before and you don't know what happened in the room when they trained together. That's the hard part. Is it uh, when you watch two people train together a lot? It's really like watching the same movie over and over. The same things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously they're going to train at different places and they know each other. So they know each other's strengths and weaknesses. So the first round may be a little iffy because they're probably going to try to do different things to throw the other guy off. But I think by the time the second round happens, we're going to see basically what we've seen from them two guys in the room. We're going to see how the room would have used, what used to happen in the room because that's really what it comes down to. If you, if you've watched enough sparring and enough training, you know that it's, it's the same movie over and over again. Like that's why it's not good to spar with the same person because it just becomes a, a redundant pattern of the same things. He takes him down, he takes him down. But from watching it on the outside, from a third eye perspective, watching them fight, um, Usman seems to be the smarter fighter, and he seems to be better in 
he seems to be the smarter, more intelligent fighter and better um, in terms of control. Mm -hmm. uh, Burns is more powerful. He's more dangerous, a little more scrappy. Tyron think Tyron he didn't say Tyron didn't say who he thought would win, but he said to Burns he felt Burns felt better. You know, Burns could do more. And I believe that Burns can do more because he's a little more scrappy. But Usman has good control, man. So it, it's it, I don't know how it's gonna play out. If Usman can control Burns, if he's been controlling him in practice, he's gonna do it in the fight. If yeah. Burns is able to maneuver and scramble on Usman, then he's gonna win that fight. But I I don't know. It's just going to, I don't know. I don't know what happened in the room. Yeah. I think it'll be a damn good fight. I'm super excited for it. How do you think Tyron kind of fits into this picture at this point in his career? He's already won the belt. He's already defend. He defended it four times, correct? Yeah. Four Five, times. Four times. Yeah. Um, what do you see for him going forward? Um, you know, he's got some soul searching to do. He's had a lot of issues in his personal life that I think affect him professionally. Um, that he's been sorting out. Um, obviously, it's not all the way sorted out, but you know he's an older fighter now too, so that's another factor. Um, it's not tough to say that his better days are probably behind him. It's not. It's not a guarantee, but everything points in that direction that your better days are behind you. But that doesn't mean that he can't come back out and and win some fights and you know still make some more money or even fight for the title again. Who knows? But um, I think he just has to do some soul searching to see if that's what he wants to do because it's going to be a lot of hard work. And is if he's if he doesn't really want to do it um, at 38, it's not worth it because it's dangerous. It's a dangerous game, and you fighting young cats. And you know the welterweight division has always been a division full of very dangerous guys who can hurt you, not just beat you, but they can hurt you. So um, he's got some soul searching to do and, and to see if that's what he really wants to do. Do you see him moving up if he does um, come back and continue fighting? Well, that's one thing I think he should do, too, is that, you know, the welterweight division may just not be the division for him right now. And if he's and if he's just going to, you know, take fights like money fights, you know, just do it at a at a high at a heavier weight. Well, don't yeah. kill yourself to make the weight. And, you know, there's and I think he could compete just as easily at 185. I mean, he's not much smaller than. You know Romero really. I mean he's. Mm -hmm. I mean Romero is is a little bit bigger, but when Tyron, if Tyron don't have to cut the weight, he could be about the same size as Romero. You know Tyron just has to you know again figure out what he wants. Is he hungry enough to do this? And is he ready to take on some new some new guys? You know Brad Tavares and and those guys like that, Derek Brunson. And I think he'll do fine with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to I want to see him at 185. I think that'd be really interesting. I'm hoping I'm hoping he can get back that strap. But uh, I know we're we're about out of time, so I just want to thank you so much for for uh, agreeing to come on. Um, it it really means a lot to me to have a legend of sport like you. But I appreciate it, man. Um, you know, don't don't be afraid to reach out to me. I can't I can't promise that I can do it every time, but I can try. I like yeah. you. <laughs> we'll have we'll have to link up again sometime. Yeah, for sure, man. You stay up and uh, and best of luck to you. Yeah, for sure. You too, man. All right, man. Take it easy.